introduce me because we've been old friends for such a long time and I think if anybody wants to learn about Plato in a very alive manner they should get John's books. Um, what I'd like to do is to start this evening the way I start with my students and that is to have a minute silence and then to make an evocation. It, it takes me a long time to try and get this evocation right and I don't know if I thoroughly have yet but that's what we'll do. So just take a minute to be silent so that one can let one's thoughts settle down and try to unload some of the baggage we might have brought with us. May truth be our guide. May we have beauty revealed to us and may it result in the good. It's really quite an awe-inspiring thing to have to represent Plato's Timaeus because I think that very few people appreciate exactly what the Timaeus is. It certainly has had more influence than any other cosmology ever written by any human being. And I would like to suggest that it took 3,000 years in preparation. And it finally came to rest with the duty of Plato to put it into writing. I say this because there's a long genealogy behind it. And that is the sacred science from ancient Babylon through Egypt which Pythagoras went to learn. In fact, Pythagoras is even believed to have gone as far as India and learned from the Brahmins as well. He brought it back. It was completely an esoteric tradition, not to be spoken, not to be written, well, to be spoken about, but not to be written about. And finally, um, Socrates asks Timaeus, who is a Pythagorean, if he will explain how the universe was born, how it came about. Timaeus was then very careful indeed. He said, well, actually, Socrates prompted him. Socrates said, after asking God's good grace, and so Timaeus said, yes, I do that before any undertaking, but not only that, every god and goddess I can think of, I try to please, uh, with a degree of humor, I hope. Um, nevertheless, the point is that I shall show quotations on the screen, and I shall read them out, um, because I th sometimes feel it's very much better to give people a chance to read the quotations directly themselves. To actually put 3,000 years into about an hour's lecture is complete and utter insanity, so we all have to join in that insanity with me, I'm afraid. But I'm going to try and put over some ideas which are very difficult to put over, mainly because the word eternity is completely out of fashion today. Nobody knows what anybody is talking about if they talk about eternity on the whole. There is only chaos theory, probability theory, relativity, and so forth, and so forth. The, the, the idea being that there's no such thing as certainty of any kind, and certainty and eternity are very closely allied. So I'm going to touch on that quite clearly. So if we could have the lights down, I should have my first slide on this screen here. Um, those who know me know that I start all my lectures on images of the sun. I always start with an image of the sun not only because it's permanent, but in this particular case, it also represents a permanency which is symbolic of the supernal sun, as it's sometimes called. It's, it's a symbol of something which always is, and it's a perfect circle, which is the most revered of all geometric shapes, the most simple one might say, the most revered. Now, I've deliberately chosen this image because if the sun in this image represents eternity and permanence, the clouds represent the world of becoming. Plato was very clear about the difference between the two. The world we live in, 
the, what, what actually should be called the actual world, we now absolutely pollute language dreadfully by calling that the real piano. That's not the real piano, that's the actual piano. The real piano is something in another dimension, in another, in eternity, one might say. So here we have the permanency of the sun and the becoming of the clouds. The clouds are always becoming and begoing, if you like. One plays with the word a little bit. So next one over there is a very important first slide on that side. Sorry, Will, I hope you can manage it. I would very much like people, if they took anything away with them, to try and just memorize that little sentence. That is an incredibly powerful sentence, and it deserves very deep meditation. It's not just a casual phrase dreamt up by a so-called Greek um, writer in 500 BC. It's an, a, an extremely important statement. He made time a flowing image of eternity, moving according to number. That deserves a great deal of thought. There's very few words there. Next one here. Now this is my favorite slide for you. That is a baby turtle heading to the sea, which is its natural survival uh, inclination. And I just want to put to you that if we take that idea there, time is a flowing image of eternity. What is intriguing is that those people who don't like to acknowledge the idea that such a thing as eternity forget that since life happened on this planet, it has been eternal. Okay, we think it's very easy to put it out. That's just human thinking. So far, life has ridden the physical plane and managed to keep its purpose going quite without interruption. A few changes, of course. So I'm using the little fellow here to be a symbol of eternity. And what I'd like to suggest to you is modern empirical science studies this. It is quite incapable. I don't know if anybody in this room realizes, but modern empirical science has got no explanation for life whatsoever. Life is beyond the definition of modern empirical science. I'd like that to be thought of too. So this little moving piece of life here can represent eternity for the moment. And here are the rhythms of time and number, which is the evidence left behind. And as I said before, time and again, this is what we see science looking at. Science is quite incapable of looking at the, little, the, the essence of that little creature itself. Next one. This is not the best translation, and I personally have given up using the term Neoplatonism. First of all, I'm not sure that Platonism is a good description. I don't think Plato would have called what he did Platonism at all. It's more like Socratically presented wisdom that Plato was writing about. But Plotinus, who's called a Neoplatonist, is absolute nonsense because there's no such thing as new Platonism. Platonism is an eternal doctrine. It cannot be new. It is always new. Well, that's me being a bit um, extreme, so you don't need to... If you're a Neoplatonist philosopher, please don't be too upset. And that comes from the Enneads by Plano. No eye that has not become like the sun will ever look upon the sun. This is a very important doctrine that comes from Socrates. Nor will any that is not beautiful look upon the beautiful. This is really a, a prompt for my next image, but what it's, it, it's to do with 
a very important doctrine in Plato that only like knows like. You can only find spirit with spirit. You can't find spirit with a human intellect if it's, if it's on that plane alone. And those who feel they can uh, um, solve the whole issue of the mystery of the world with the human mind have made a, a dreadful error. Spirit can only be found with spirit. Mind can be found with mind. Emotion can be found with emotion. Body can be found with body. These things are just facts of like knowing like. And that's the basis of Plotinus um, talking about that Platonic doctrine. Next one here. So what I'd like to say to you is, this is from a very recent book called Faces from Africa. This is a bride, a young bride, and she is decked as she should be for her wedding. And to me, it's a magnificent example of the power and intrinsic nature of geometry and beauty being wedded together. This person doesn't bring out their compass. They don't prove anything with algebra. This is, this is just beauty knowing beauty. I think that as my dear friend Warren Kenton is present tonight, I'm deeply honored that he should come. He can see the tree of life rising from the girl's brow here. And many of you will see a lot more there should you wish to. But the, and the most moving thing about this, this image, I think, also, is there's one little teardrop coming from her eye. Next one over there. Now, some of you will know how the true Renaissance in Europe happened at the first millennium. Nothing to do with Italy and the 15th century. That's another complete sidetrack and, and, as far as I'm concerned, a mis misunderstanding of what a Renaissance is. Erio Jena, Irish, amazing Irish scholar. Nobody quite knows where he came from. But he was asked by the king, then king of France, if he would start the first university, and that is where the Renaissance was. The Renaissance was born in Europe, came to its greatest flowering in the school of Chartres in the 11th and 12th centuries, but Eriogena was an extraordinary man with extraordinary knowledge of about five different sacred languages. So if you want to really chase somebody up who really knew what they're talking about, I suggest you chase up Eriogena. But I'm using him because he said, quite clearly, Plato is the summit of the philosophers. Next one here. These are the opening three words of the Timaeus dialogue. It starts off by Socrates saying, one, two, three, where, my dear, is the fourth? Now, I've put one, two, three, and the fourth together in a line, one, two, three, four, because there is a pretty heavily um, symbolically presented statement about what the whole of the Timaeus is about. What is one? Are we all so confident we can immediately say what we know what one is? What is two? What is three? And what is four? Now, for those of us who, here who have dabbled in the kind of thing I have and have heard my previous lectures, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 letters. Those 19 letters immediately put that, those, that group of words into the same category as Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim, the opening of the Holy Quran, 
And it's the same number of times that Mary is mentioned in the Gospels, and there are 19 words mentioned 19 times in the Christian Gospels. 19 is a very special number. It happens to be the number when the sun and the moon come into exact coordination in the 19th year of Cyrus. Happens to be, in other words, a cosmic fact, as much as it is um, a very powerful esoteric, unifying number behind all the major religions. Next one over there. That is one, two, three, four. That is what is being said here. One, two, three, four. Very, very simple geometry. Sum is ten. And this is the Greek version of the Kabbalistic tree, which is also ten, but in a different form. But ten is the sacred number. Ten is called the tetractus. Tetrak means fourness, but this one, two, three, fourness means complete at ten. There are nine archetypal numbers, or nine divine numbers, and find a return to unity in the tenth. There's many ways of looking at this. But that's what I believe we can see Socrates is aiming at when he talks about these first three opening words. Next one here. Now this is a little bit from, from the Philebus, not from the Timaeus, but this is a very nice quotation. I shall read it out because it's, it's so important. The mathematical and geometrical sciences far surpass all others. And those branches of these which are animated by the pure philosophic impulse are infinitely superior in the accuracy and truth of their measures and numbers. That's the Philebus 57D. This is Plato later talking about, or maybe in preparation. I don't know which comes first. John probably does. Um, this is Plato making it absolutely clear, and many contemporary wise people who studied Socrates, the study of mathematics and geometry is one of the key things for tuning the human mind to a higher understanding of what truth of the capital T is. Next one over there. And again, I'm taking Proclus and it's absolutely extraordinary fact that the first time the spiritual interpretation of Euclid was translated into modern English in our time, within the last eight years. Never before, right back into classical times. Proclus had not been put into modern language, it's not been put into English before until now. And as John was saying in the introduction, he and I, and many of those of us who've been realize what's happening in the second millennium is this, is this is another rebirth of understanding how we must look at science as a sacred thing. Not science as something which, which, which nullifies the soul, but it's a sacred thing. Something which, of course, the person who inspired the building of this, this particular theater, Rudolf Steiner, was perfectly aware of. All mathematics are present in the soul from the first. Mathematics comes from the soul. It does not come from observation of the, of the natural world. This is the fundamental difference between Aristotle and Plato. Um, and forgive me for all those Aristotelians in the room, Aristotle in many senses can be talked about as being, I, I hate to say it, I'm sorry to say it, a failure of a student of Plato. Meaning by that, 
Plato does not appear in his dialogues. There's no first person in Plato. But Aristotle uses the royal we time and time again, and he was not able quite to put his ego down. He really wanted to be seen as the wisest and cleverest man that lived or even ever lived, maybe. Anyway, I don't want to hammer the poor man, because he did give a great deal. And the better philosophers later put Aristotle and Plato back together again. Because remember that Aristotle was a student of Plato's for 18 years, and that's where he got his material from. Next one here. So, the nature of mathematics and the nature of the human soul are the same thing. What we're looking at there can be considered to be a glass marble, if you wish, to be very literal, but it also can be seen as being a model of our own soul, our perfected soul, if you like. That which is our perfection. Sometimes it's represented in Buddhism as being a surrounding sphere. Sometimes, like in the Upanishads, it's talked about as being a seed in the heart in which the whole world exists and is about the size of a marble, curiously enough. Next one over there. So there are the so-called platonic figures. I say so-called, they're only called the platonic figures because Plato was the first person to commit them to writing. And even so, he did not actually commit this one, the dodecahedron, to writing. He just implied there was a certain fifth and the friend of God will know about it. Very interesting thing, he was not going to break the rules of Pythagoreanism. And the very strict rule in Pythagoreanism was that dodecahedron was not to be revealed. It was revealed quite soon after by Aristotle, but that's not to be surprised at. But we have the octahedron, the cube, the icosahedron, the tetrahedron. I'm sorry, this tetrahedron's been rather truncated by the model makers in Mexico. They can be forgiven. And the perfect sphere. These are the five regular, the only five regular figures which come and every aspect of these relates, points, lines, and surfaces relate to a containing sphere. So these are the differentiations from the sameness and unity of the sphere. Next one here. Now, I'm putting this one up as well because I, te I tend to want go back to R.G. Berry's translation of Plato time and again. It's still in print. It still can be got. The main reason being that the English translation and the Greek original are side by side. And it's extremely valuable to see what struggles Berry or any other modern translators had to try and bring into English the original Greek. Anybody who's had anything to do with the languages and, and the um, translation of languages, there's a lovely Chinese thing saying, a translation is at best the reverse side of a piece of sewing. Anyway, here's R.G. Berry. I think it first came out in 1929. It's still in print, and the seventh letter, absolutely powerfully important letter, sometimes called an epistle here, and the Timaeus are in this little book. And here it is, my well-worn copy. This is as big as you, it fits in your pocket quite easily. And you've got, it's a bargain. 3,000 years in one little volume, it's a bargain. Next one here. I'm going to read this one, too, because this is profoundly important, because after Timaeus has prayed to all the gods and goddesses that he can think of, then he says, very clearly, we should be content if we can furnish accounts which are inferior to none in likelihood. Very important statement. Inferior to none in likelihood. In other words, we try our utmost with our human reasoning 
to get the most likely possible story about how the creation took place, which is what he's doing. Remembering that both I who speak to you and you who judge are but human and mortal creatures. So it becomes us to accept the likely account of these matters and forbear to search beyond it. Now, I really would be very nice if modern physicists could drop some of the arrogance that we've had whale, uh, ladled over us in recent time and, and, and listen carefully to what Timaeus is saying and what Plato's having Timaeus say through his dialogue. We can only, as human beings, give a likely account of the creation with the exception that they're not talking about and not qualifying this in, in, in terms of a revelation. A revelation is the word of God coming through, and that's quite a different thing. This is the philosophy, philosophers talking. This is using love of wisdom, philosophia, the human mind. Next one here. I put this in because I like the image. And it's a giant question mark. Those who are terribly clever about modern empirical physics I still find, when I see something like that, here is a full-sized tree here. This is on the edge of the Namibian desert. And it's quite a remarkable thing to think that little grains of sand, which are all cubic, remember, go into these extraordinary patterns. Can we explain these things any more than we explain life? I don't believe we can. Well, we can enjoy their beauty and grandeur. Next one. I think that we've had that one, actually. That's, that's the one we want, I think, isn't it? Good. And let's have the, new, the other one on here, too, please. Um, you're doing a great job there, Will. I'm sorry you had to both together. When Plato has Timaeus speak about the founding of the human soul, is this wonderful, this is the way I've treated my book. I, I ought to be reprimanded, I think, for drawing all over it, but... Here's the statement going from Timaeus. And whereas the body of the heavens is visible, the soul herself invisible. Something terribly important to remember. The thing which matters most is actually intangible and invisible. But partakes in reasoning and in harmony. The whole basis of the soul is reasoning and harmony. Having come into existence by the agency of the best of all things intelligible and ever existing as the best of all things generated. Inasmuch then as she is a compound, this is the soul, she is a compound, blended of the natures, and this is terribly important, of sameness, otherness, and being. I'm putting the ness on the end because it's a platonic habit and I prefer it. Same, other, and being. People have often, and it's the, it's the fashion at the moment, to say Plato's a dualist. It's absolute nonsense. Here he is, founding the soul of the world on three qualities, which he blends together and then starts apportioning this blend into numerical proportions. Sameness, otherness, and being. I recommend, again, that's something well worth taking away and thinking about what those things mean. What is sameness, what is otherness, and what is being? Now, in the lambda, as it's called, Plato only reveals these seven numbers here. He does not reveal these. These would be here if the whole Pythagorean Tetractus was put together. So he starts from one, two, and three. And he argues that these things have got to eventually become three-dimensional, otherwise they couldn't be in this tangible world. So we'll see that in a minute. But one, two, two times two is four, 
2 times 4 is 8. This is often called the material wing. 1 times 3, 3 times 3 is 9, 3 times 9 is 27. These seven numbers become symbols for the orbits of the planets because that's what the soul is creating. It's creating this extraordinary, um, what we now call the solar system, but the, the necessary parts. You could easily say the seven notes of a diatonic scale, and you wouldn't be far wrong. Next one here. But they have to be seen in three dimensions. And so it's very important to realize, very important indeed, the Greeks, neither Plato, nor Aristotle, nor Euclid, nor any of the great Greek mathematicians had written numbers. If you didn't know that, that's something to come to terms with. They did not have written numbers. One was A, two was B, three was G, which is C, D was four. They had to write in letters. So what happened was the whole of Greek mathematics was done by the little pebbles, having inherited it from Pythagoras. That little pebble is called the calcis. Stone, calcis, that's where calculation comes from. We still use the word calculation. These pebbles eventually got strung up on abacuses for, for measuring with. So one, two, three, four can either be represented like that and become eight like that, or four can become a tetrahedron like that. One, three, nine can be represented by a deltahedra here, or nine little pebbles like that, and then those become cubed, become 27. The normal way would be to follow this track and this track, but I thought it would be quite useful and interesting for you to see there are two three-dimensional models at the level of four and nine. Four is quite obvious, nine little less so. You have a trigonal prism, and you put a sphere in each face of the trigonal prism, and you get to here. So though that it, those are the apportioning, these were all proportional apportionings of that amazing mixture that, that the Creator made out of sameness, otherness, and being, that, that threefold. I, said, I was going to say ice cream or custard or pudding, but somehow he managed to amalgamate all these things together and then apportion these numbers from it. Now, the other thing which is important to understand is that Plato also is not, does not support the idea of ex nihilo. In other words, the creation didn't come out of nothing. The creation was an order, ordering of something which already existed. And what already existed was another threeness. Another reason why there's no way you can say Plato's a dualist. And here is uh, Timaeus speaking. Let this be according to my verdict, a reasoned account of the matter summarily stated that being, place, and becoming Three distinct things were in existence even before heaven came into existence. In other words, it's a form of disordered, but nevertheless qualified amalgam. I'm trying to not use the word chaos because chaos has been very badly misrepresented by... Some people say there's a thing called chaos theory. It's not a theory of chaos at all. It's a theory of order. How they managed to lodge the word chaos on this extraordinarily ordered equation that was found, which is a pretty simple one. That's the modern world for us. Next one here. So here is, Timaeus goes on further about the word becoming. 
as an opposition to being. Becoming means that which is always changing and getting nearer to what it wants to be. But the nurse of becoming, being filled with potencies that are neither similar nor balanced, swayed unevenly in every part. In other words, next slide over there is the best image I could find for it. Um, this actually is part of the creation myth in the Jain um, religion in India. I found this carved on a ceiling in a Jain temple, and it just seemed to be such a beautiful example of this, this, this turning and twisting going on before geometric order and numerical order was brought in by the creator, according to Plato, this is. Next one there. It is plain to all that fire and earth, water and air are solid bodies. In other words, if we're in a three-dimensional world, which we are, then all these things have got to be, be bodily. This, of course, is confirmed by modern science in its own way, um, which, inevitably, which inevitably possess depth. Further, depth is bounded by a plane surface, and this means composed of triangles. This is where we get again to Plato making triangles, a threeness again, to be the absolute fundamental basis of how the atomic world was put together. So, something which is three-dimensional is composed of surfaces, and anybody in this room who's been into geometry at all knows that any three-dimensional form can be reduced to triangles. That's the ultimate reduction you can take it to. Whatever shape, it can be reduced to triangles. Next one here. Of the two kinds of triangle, the isosceles and the scalene, the latter has an infinite number of possible forms, the scalene. We must select the fairest if, however, this is a very important point, if, however, anyone can claim they have chosen one fairer, the victory is theirs. What Plato is saying here is there is a particular scalene triangle which he actually declines to talk about. And that's the one which is into the center of a pentagon, because it reveals the way in which the dodecahedron can be made. So he just says, in other words, he's talking about, again, the friend of God who would know this. We, however, shall postulate the fairest of the triangles is the one which, when two are put together, the equilateral triangle becomes the third and the product. Now, I'll show a drawing of that, because that's a little bit technical in a way. This is the first triangle that Plato offers. This is the isosceles, where two angles are the same with the 90 degrees here. And this is the other one, which he says is the most beautiful, the fairest. This is the most beautiful of the scalene triangles. The scalene triangles have three different lengths and, and, and three different angles on them. Two of these put together give us the equilateral triangle. This, he says, is the fairest. Now, taking that particular triangle, it can be arranged in such a way that it can make a larger version of itself. And this is how the atomic molecules make larger and larger versions of their own quality. In the same way, two of these become a square, and that then eight of them become a bigger square, and so forth. But what's intriguing, absolutely fascinating, is those two triangles contain an immense mystery. And that mystery is something which cannot be solved numerically by a computer. And that is, we do, if we call this if we call this side one, if we call this side two, because it's twice the length of that, this distance here cannot be computed by a computer, even if it goes busts and burns up all the energy on the planet. 
don't bother to try, folks. You can, by all means. And if you, as Peter says, if the victory is yours, fine. But so far, nobody's managed. Same thing. One, one, incomputable into whole numbers. That distance across the diagonal of a square cannot be computed to finish. It'll go on like pi forever. Now, I personally call that quality transcendental. But modern mathematics will not allow that to be used because they've claimed the word transcendental for a different. But it's up each to their own. So here we have Plato giving us two immense mysteries as being the foundation. He doesn't even mention the fact they're mysteries. Now, I personally, again, am not in favor of calling these incommensurables or irrationals, which occasionally are used. They're really transrational. They're above and beyond rationality. They're not below it. They're a huge mystery, very, very interesting mystery. And those, what you're looking at there, are as common as any in the relationships of modern atomic physics, what you're looking at. I'm just going to put you through some Greek mathematics. This is a pebble. And these pebbles are very nicely round, the ones I got to photograph here mainly because they've been tumbled for a long time. Next one over there, two. Now, how often do we even think what an extraordinary mystery one is, mathematically? What is one plus one? A dangerous question to answer an audience. What is, come on, come on, come on, what's one plus one? Two, good. What's one minus one? What's one minus one? There's no such thing as nothing. Come on, we're in a physical world. Mystery number one. What's one times one? Much more powerful than one's plus one. What's one times one? Doesn't get anywhere with the multiplication. Everything else does. Extraordinary mystery that we're asked to accept about oneness and one, mathematically. Two, this, both these were considered by the ancient philosophers not to be numbers at all yet. That's the principle of all number. And this is the principle of multiplication or multiplicity, the two-ness of all things, the otherness of all things, the sameness of all things, the otherness of all things. This is heaven and earth. This is heaven being reflected on earth and so forth. Of course, it's the number two as well. So after two, we get three. And this is where <coughs> Pythagoras says, between here and here and here and here, that triangle is the most beautiful of all the scalene triangles. Another mystery. Next one over there. Now we can go to four that way. And everybody's happy and comfortable with that. That's four as a square. And Plato said, this is the other most important triangle, from here to here to here back to there. And between that triangle and that triangle, all the four elements were built by the Creator. Extraordinarily powerful and simple conclusion. Next one here, but there's more. And I just wanted to repeat back, this is the way in which the soul was created. Now, we can go there, on our way to here, point, line, plane, solid, point, line, plane, solid, or we can go another way. We can go 
this root here. That is a very profound and powerful fourness. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that is the, one of the possibly most powerful experiences everybody in this room had in the genesis of their own being. You're all perfectly aware of the fact that you were a single spherical cell when your mother was fertilized by your father. And that cell split to become two, and from two it became four. And when it became four, which is the third experience you had, one might say, because this is the definition of life by modern science, the nearest they get to a definition is life is that which can experience. It's not very powerful, but nevertheless, we have all been that very early on. Therefore, so, well, I'll come back to that in a minute. Next one here. So this is the way Plato said the equilateral triangle then has to be seen to be made of six, which is fascinating inasmuch this sixness is fundamental to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, as well as the I Ching. The creation myth of ancient China, the creation story, the revelation of Judaism, the revelation, same revelation for Christianity, same revelation for Islam, that God created in six, in a six, it's six days, in a sixness. From there, Plato used this one in an eightness, which again is, um, I, I pretty think it'd be comfortable to say, is an analogy to a diatonic scale. Next one here. That's how they build up the different platonic figures. The tetrahedron is fire, made of six on each face. The octahedron here is air. The icosahedron is water. All these three are made out of the same triangle. All those three elements, fire, air, and water, are all made out of this one. And there they are. Then the other two are different. Plato does not go into this. He does not describe this. But he does describe Earth, which is this one. Only one, this triangle only produces one of the elements, which is the solidity of Earth. And that symbol of the cube being Earth is universal. To say the least of the Kaaba in Islam, but almost any, part, any civilization that you choose to take on the planet, it's very unlikely that the cube isn't a symbol for Earth. Next one here. So Timaeus reasons in the following way. To the Earth, which is solidity, he gives the cubic form, for it is the most immobile and the most plastic body. Now this is where a lot of modern have tried to make fun of Plato, saying, does he really believe that because the cube is immobile, it's the Earth and so forth? But it misses the fact that Plato quite clearly states in his, all his other dialogues and doctrines, there are four levels at which you must understand what I'm saying. If you've got the persistence and the patience to get into it. So immobility here is, has, has a very profound meaning. It's the center of the mobility of the heavens that go around it. This, he claims, preserves the most probable account. Again, he always falls back onto saying, this is only me as a human being, going, taking my speculation as far as I can. Of those regular figures which are the basis of the allocation to molecules of fire, which is the tetrahedron, and air, which is the gaseous state, and water, which is the liquid state. Again, people have tried to ridicule Plato by talking about fire being a pyramid and so forth, but he does go on to explain what we now, these four, we now think we are immensely clever. We found 92 elements, and Plato only had four. Oh, what a primitive fellow he was. We've got 92. 
Plato was actually, now they've replaced it in modern empirical science with, this, with the word states of matter. Solid state, liquid state, gaseous state, state of radiation. Plato makes it quite clear when you read on that he's talking about the same thing. Next one here. Now, I'm very touched that my middle daughter spent her summer holidays on the beaches in Scotland seeking out pebbles, which are as near to round as she could find. These are natural pebbles on the beach in Scotland. They're being held together by blue tack. So forgive the high tech bit. But in Greek times, they've been held together by little bits of clay, no doubt. In other words, calculation would have been made not only on flat in the sand, but also would have been made in three dimensions by sticking the little fellows together with clay, no doubt. So there is a model of the Earth, the molecule of Earth, I might say, not Earth as we experience it, the, the minute atomic molecule. Next one here. The pyramid or tetrahedron shall be the element seed of fire, the second in order of generation. The octahedron, which shall affirm to be air or gaseousness. The third, the icosahedron, which is water or liquid state. We must now conceive all these to be so small, atomic, most extraordinary idea. It's taken 2,000 years for us to actually get into an experimental state where we can actually prove this is what atoms alike and so forth, that none of them is seen by us until they have collected into their masses. God realized these with exactness and thus ordered all in harmonious proportion. The whole key to what God was up to was getting a harmonious relationship between things which don't, are normally quite different. There is the seed of fire and there is the seed of air according to Plato. Next one. Here's the seed of water, and I've drawn on this how water would expand to become greater by taking this whole equilateral triangle and making it up of four other equilateral triangles with, with the little sixness on each case. So there are 20 facets here making water, and that water can get larger and larger according to how many of these are on it. Now, one of the most extraordinary things about each time modern empirical science turns up something new, I'm afraid my look at it is always, with the advice I get from reading the Platonic Timaeus, look for what is eternally true. Look, look for the model which is likely to have always been true, not what is the latest theory. Next one here. This happens to be a piece of very beautiful... Japanese paper folding, otherwise known as Hitomi. Origami. Now, what's rather beautiful about this origami is, instead of there being six here, the right and left triangles have been made into one color and been fitted together. Now, this is to show that it isn't something which was um, invented in Greece, but it is a, a universal law. We'll come back to that more than once. Next one here. This was something that excited me as much as anything has excited me over the years. This was the first electron micrograph, this image here, of a virus. And a virus is the bridge between non-life and life. That's the definition of a virus. Why did they scrub the spacemen up for a week when they came back? It was so that President Nixon didn't catch a virus from them when he went to shake their hands. No, quite truthfully, 
a virus can, could have lived on the moon for thousands of years and be then become in contact with human warmth and human protein and then multiplies. That's what viruses do. They're the natural, um, what's the word? They're the natural noughties. <laughs> they live on other people's energy. So this, is, this, this virus here was the bridge between life and non-life. And what is life based on? What is the basis of life? Basis, at least. Thank you. Uh, good Muslim in the front row here. We brought through water every living thing. The Holy Quran is absolutely says it more than once. We brought through water every living thing. Life and water are synonymous. Can't have life without water. Can't have. So, here we have the water molecule according to Plato, and we have this extraordinary little creature, the bridge between life and non-life. Pure coincidence, but a very interesting one. I'm going to show you even more beautiful coincidence here now. If that was a virus, this virus here has been called the first human retrovirus. God knows what that means, but nevertheless, it's a virus that goes backwards, presumably. But there again, we have the body of that virus is an icosahedron within its own extraordinary. This was 1986, this was discovered much later than that. But here we find again this extraordinary bridge between life and non-life. Using water is the icosahedron. Next one here. These are the, four, the three shapes of which Plato talks about these and talks about this being the most beautiful triangle, the most beautiful scalene triangle. But if anybody finds another, the victory is theirs. Plato does not enter into this one here. That is why he puts that little thing in there. This was only to be known by people who really were morally capable of not mishandling it. Now that's something, of course, is a big question about our own modern times. I don't know how many people here know um, what shape the atom bomb was that went off in Japan that we triggered. Anybody, any idea what shape it was? It was a dodecahedron. They made the atom bomb into a dodecahedron. And I couldn't get a better example in my own mind of the misuse of the use and understanding. But that's something else. Next one here. Oh, it doesn't want to go. It's one of those other slides that shouldn't be seen. <laughs> it's one of those retroviruses. <laughs> This is the one we wanted, so it's all right. No, no, go back one, if it will. That's the one I wanted, OK. This, what I'm pointing out here, here is five in pebbles, of which there would be a pebble on each corner here. Now, what's intriguing is the distance between here and here is a golden mean larger than the distance between there and there. If these are one, the distance one, all the diagonals going through here, which would make a five-pointed star, they are all golden means. And the golden mean is the basis of organic life. You have it in your hand. If you fold your hand up like this, you have a series of logarithmic growth in the very spiral of the opening and closing of your hand. It's not exactly a golden mean necessarily, but it's, a, it's the same mathematical curve. Next one here. 
I did promise I would go back to our own personal origins. All of us started life as a sphere. We start as perfection, and we have the opportunity to result as perfection. That's, that's our choice, if we wish to head on that direction. Now, this line here are all the other animal kingdom, mostly frogs and things like that. And they go from point to line to a square to a cube. A frog lands up as a cube. Human being, the only one that doesn't, human being point becomes a line, then when it gets onto four, it does a little dance and becomes a tetrahedron. Our first experience, if life is experience, our second experience, our third experience, is to be the very first platonic figure. Therefore, when Plato suggests that all mathematicals are in the soul, here, even if you believe in experiential knowledge, for a human being, our, our experiences are extraordinarily geometric. There's, you become a cubic antiprism later on, but that's like a retrovirus. Don't worry about that. Next one here. There's the tetrahedron that we saw there. In this case, a rather nice model of the three primary colors and white light above. Of course, you can put a black sphere on the underside, so you have light and dark as well. It's a very, very powerful model for many, many reasons. And the DNA helix of life is built exactly on this tetrahedron. If you stick tetrahedrons together, you get this wonderful DNA helix. Next one here. So I'm going to use Boethius. Boethius is a later Platonic scholar. And in his book on arithmetic, his second book on arithmetic, he was alive between 480 and 524, that intermediate period. He was also partially responsible for the Renaissance in the first millennium. Everything proceeding from the profound nature of things shows the influence and law of number. For this is the highest prototype contained in the mind of the founder. From this are derived the four elements, the succession of the seasons, the movement of the stars, and the course of the heavens. So there is Boethius standing by exactly the Pythagorean principle that number Numbers themselves are angelic intelligences, one might say. They have their own power of intelligence in themselves. They're not something which came about through somebody looking, oh, I've got four fingers, I can count four, which is the rather pathetic position an empiricist might come to. Next one here. Now, this is a huge molecule, this one here, of which I'm only showing a tiny piece of it. This is the lysosome molecule. And if it was, the whole model was here, it would be, be about as big as where I am now. Incredibly complicated three-dimensional model called the lysosome molecule. It's part of the living cell, part of every cell in our body. And I'm just going to focus now on the only things that this hugely complex, and it took them years to, to, to um, get this out. Next one here. There are the only geometric formula needed. Although, of course, the first tetrahedron here, tetrahedron is carbon. The second one is side chain carbon in yellow. Then nitrogen in a triangle, oxygen, sulfur, and hydrogen bond. And this is a three-dimensional model of the lysosome, which is part of our living tissue. Only needs one platonic figure, as well as the line and the triangle. This is the procedure. Line, plane, solid. Although it becomes extremely complex, 
His strategy is simple platonic geometry. Next one. This is very interesting too, and I'm hoping somebody will be able to help me on the next slide here. I hope we've got a metallurgist in the audience. Bound to be a metallurgist somewhere in the audience. Hang on to your gold rings if you're not. This is actually from um, a rather important book. If you want to really look into and study Plato's Timaeus, um, F.M. Cornford, the scholar F.M. Cornford, whose son I was a, an associate with for many years at the Royal College of Art, F.M. Cornford wrote a beautiful book on the Timaeus, the most thorough-going book. So he's quoting here Plato saying, of all these fusible varieties of water, now this is interesting, fusible varieties of water, as we have called them, meaning, of course, that, that they're, they're, they're liquid, they're not actual water, they're liquid, one that is very dense, being formed of very fine and uniform particles, unique in its kind, tinged with shining, and in yellow hue is gold. Gold, the metal, becomes a liquid, according to Plato here. The treasure most highly prized that has been filtered through the rock and there compacted as a liquid. He knows, of course, the way in which gold is extracted from rock is to make it back into liquid by melting it, and this is how his reasoning goes. Now, I was fascinated to find in my physics book, if anybody can tell me what copper in molecule with uh, um, copper and gold together are. Somebody, metallurgist, tell me what that is. It's cupra something, I'm sure. Nevertheless, uh, this layer, th this is the molecule. This is modern physics molecule. Copper atoms, then four atoms of gold, then five atoms of copper again. Layer of copper, layer of gold, layer of copper. And then I've just simply linked them through, and we have the cube, and we have the octahedron. These are the platonic figures within most of our crystallography in modern physics. Next one here. Man, I have immense respect for, and many times it's been said that when philosophers and clever thinkers have dried up, the poets come along with a solution. Now, I think that structure is intelligibility by the poet Wendell Berry is absolutely beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful statement. And again, like a piece of poetry, it needs thinking about more than once and more than twice. Next one here, that is a natural crystal, and it's called cobaltite. Cobalt, you know cobalt, lovely cobalt blue. This is cobaltite. It's a natural crystal, and it came from Sweden, and it is in the form of a dodecahedron, but it's not 100% accurately a dodecahedron because this little edge here is slightly longer than these, and that's the way it's forming in a cubic net. But there is the natural crystal, as it, as it can be seen at human size. Next one here. And here is Johannes Kepler, who was most inspired by the Platonic figures, and slightly jokily in a way, he, puts the, he draws these in his book, fire inside a tetrahedron, birds flying around inside an octahedron because it's air, um, fish and creatures that crawl in the water inside icosahedron, in the earth, tools for making agriculture and a tree, and finally the dodecahedron with the sun and the stars. So there's little, little images used by, by Johannes Kepler in his book on astronomy. He was completely inspired by the Platonic.
figures in his understanding. Next one here. These are three views of that dodecahedron. You can look on it as a point and you'll get this image. You can look at it on, at a face and you'll get the five-fold image. Or you can look at it on an edge and you'll get that image. Those are three views of the same solid, the same figure. And I'm going to show you a couple of things about it from that point of view. Next one here. If you look at it as a point, the most remarkable thing happens optically. This is not a trick. You can, anybody who cares to go out and buy themselves a little crystal dodecahedron, put it down, take a photograph at a point, and you'll see the cube of Earth inside the heavens of the dodecahedron. Just a coincidence, but it's a very nice one. Next one here. And this very beautiful crystal dodecahedron engraved with the 12 signs of the zodiac on it. Here we see Sagittarius here, and um, I think there's Cancer here, and so forth. But each one of the 12 signs of the zodiac have been carved on this, and nobody understood this better than Rudolf Steiner, who found a way of opening up the dodecahedron so there was a complete flow of the sun through the 12 signs of the zodiac in the net of this figure. I'm not showing that this occasion, but later on I'll come back to it. Next one here. So, again, very simply, I shall move on to Rudolf Steiner for a bit in honor of the fact we're here. God first began by marking them out into shapes by means of forms and numbers. This is the way the Creator thought and acted on getting the Creator. And God constructed them so far as He could to be as fair and good as possible. Fair meaning beautiful. So the true, the good, and the beautiful are the three synonymous, co-present Platonic values that are necessary. Next one here. So there's the dear man, um, the nearest to a smile I could find of a picture of him. He, he wasn't often seen smiling. Next one here. And this very remarkable building that he made. Unfortunately, there was a model of it in the, in the, in the foyer. I hope the model would still be here, but it's not. But this is the first Gertianum he made, the first... Um, theater and place of meeting. A very, very remarkable building, but remarkable particularly in as much that he was the first person to realize and rediscover, re-realize, realize that Platonic geometry had always been built into all sacred architecture, all sacred traditions, but it was always esoterically and orally done. It was very rarely announced until later on in the Italian Renaissance, a certain amount was. Next one here. I just want to show you how that works. There is the plan of that building. The big dome that you're looking at is here, the smaller dome is here, and the rest is periphery. Very important. There's so much one could say about this. One could give a whole lecture on it on its own, if one was capable and not. But there's the larger dome, there's the smaller dome. Now I want to show you how Rudolf Steiner built the dodecahedron that is the image of the heavens, which is what a dome symbolizes, into his plan. Next one here. Here is the larger circle. There's the smaller circle, and there's the circle which unites the two. In both occasions, he's taken the dodecahedron and opened it out as if it was a model. If you, took, if you cut these shapes out and folded it around, they would become solid. So he's taking what we call the net of the dodecahedron to proportion the way in which this dome and that dome, as you can see there, how they relate to each other. Not only that, he then proportioned it again, next one here, to show how the completed figure would fit, fit inside this dome and a completed dodecahedron would fit inside that one. And there are all sorts of musical relationships and ratios between there and there. You can buy a very good book 
on this subject, actually at the bookshop here if one's interested, but for me it was a wonderful eye-opener. I hadn't seen anybody who had actually grasped the significance of platonic geometry, Timaean geometry, and putting it into architecture like this. Next one there. And as John raised the issue of Buckminster Fuller, I have to honor my other teacher here. And this was a newspaper that came out, out in Iran many, many years ago, as you can see by the fact of my lovely sideboards and dark hair. But um, we were not, as it says here, in heated discussion. We were in very amicable and friendly discussion, but of course newspapers have to change the facts. But this is my first teacher, and we were together at a conference in Iran. And next one here is an image of how he taught. Buckminster Fuller said, I, Buckminster Fuller, am an experimental mathematician, immediately bringing mathematics into the tangible world and proving things by doing. So what he did, what this sphere, where he was trying to understand the whole nature of sphere and great circles on the sphere, was made out of those little strips that you have, those little blinds that go like this. What are they called? Venetian ones. How did the Venetians get hold of them? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he took these strips of Venetian blind and measured them and made a sphere. Now I'm going to show you another teacher of mine, and I hope Hitomi will have to forgive me because I can't remember the name of this, my next teacher. Next one here. Can you read her name, Hitomi? For those who didn't catch it, see Hitomi afterwards. Another of my teachers, and here is a great platonic Practical mathematician, practicing the art of Tamari, it's called, and here's what she does. And this is only a little tiny fellow about this big. And in doing this, here is the basic particle that is being talked about by Plato, and here are all the different possible great circle lines on it. It's, that is the, the face of an icosahedron. So having honored these two dear ladies. I'm just going to finish now. Next one over there. Just so that you can get your mind around this, here's a very simple example for you. You won't find it at all difficult, I'm sure, to see this as a square, a spherical square. Okay? Any problems on that? Can you see that as a square with the eight divisions? Now I want you to see this as an equilateral triangle. Okay? Can you see that as an equilateral triangle with the six pieces on it? So the six and the eight are in absolute integration now. This is the whole secret behind Plato's talking about the most intelligent movement in the universe is the circular movement. So here we go. We have that which um, this form which Plato gives to begin with and that form, they are now integrated in, back into unity on a sphere. Next one here. Um, I think I shall run over this very quickly, but if you want to get Kornfer's book on Plato's cosmology, he talks a lot about the impossibility of translating these Greek words and how all, everybody has the same problem. And they're all to do with the two mo notions of rotary movement and the spherical figure traced by these rotary movements. These rotary movements are the most intelligent movements that God uses to make up the whole. They only become differentiated when you flatten that sphere back into solids. So the next one here. In my book, Order in Space, I showed my own personal discoveries about how that worked. 
you see this triangle very simply here, made up of the six, six little particles, dark light, dark light, dark light. Then what I'm going to point out is next, you can see this yellow triangle, that yellow triangle here, which is made up of many more of these, but nevertheless exactly made up of these. That is the face of the octahedron, air, that's this one. And if you go from this point right over to that point, right over to this point and back over to this point again, then you get the tetrahedron of fire. All the platonic figures are on this unitary sphere. And, it, and it, the numbers on this exactly coincide with the Chinese Book of Changes, which is fascinating. Now, most people can't and don't think in spherical forms, but the exercise to do so is very worthwhile. And all you need to do is buy yourself a, a modern football is already well marked out into these forms anyway, and take some tape and just tape them up and you'll be delighted as to what you find. Last three coming up now, I think. Don't forget, you're in good company if you start geometry. I hope you can recognize who that is. That is the Dalai Lama. What is the Dalai Lama doing? He's making the very first scalene triangle that Plato talked about. And not only that, it's such a sacred act that he is, he is partaking of that he has to have a dorje in each hand to make sure his hands are noble and reverent enough to be making this geometry, this extraordinary mandala. Next one. And I'd like to put to you one of the problems we have in the modern times is the meaning of the word intelligence. And I would suggest to you there are three very definite different kinds of intelligence. And we can participate in whichever intelligence we wish. But of these two, what is often called the intelligence of faith or religion and the intelligence of or cerebral intelligence, which is the scientific intelligence, these two always seem to be at loggerheads and war with each other. But there is actually a reconciling intelligence, which Shwala de Lubitsch, who's one of my teachers, called intelligence of the heart. That is, there's got to be a unifying factor. And this is the whole point about this triangle. The paradox and the intuitive and the mystical, these are all the only way in which you can balance wholeness. The skeptical and critical and scientific, absolutely necessary, but the dogmatic, the authoritative and the orthodox, also absolutely necessary. So rather than these two be at battles with each other, there is a reconciling factor, and that's the one which seems to be the most important for us to rediscover and use. So I'll just finish on two more slides. As I began with the circle, and where does the word horizontal come from? Of course, the horizon. And how are we related to that? We're the upright being looking at it. And finally, I'm going to Wang Pi. Wang Pi was the most distinguished commentator who died at the age of 33, I believe, of Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu, the greatest of the Chinese philosophers. And I thought it's a nice way to finish. The basis of beauty lies in simplicity, and that of knowledge in unity. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Yes, yes. Yes. Uh, yes, absolutely, John. Um, John, quite correctly, um, brings up 
probably the most profound speech of Socrates' life. It's bound to be the most profound speech because it's the last one he made because he wanted to leave behind his knowledge. And he said, if you could see the world as I see it, it's like the leather balls that children play with. You can actually buy them. And here's one in my hands. But this, unfortunately, is advertising the, the Daily Telegraph, which is not what my intention was, but that's the only one I could find. If this, now, and I've been intending to do this, John, if this had been colored, each face had been colored, that would be the nearest to what Socrates, as John has just said, was saying. And that's a lovely meditation in itself. These balls can be bought quite cheaply in most sports shops now, the little ones for playing with, and they're exactly the ball that Socrates said, if you could see. So um, you're right, John. He, it's not that he did. It was in the Timaeus that he didn't say it, but by the time Socrates came to the end, it, it was probably a sign that these things needed to be out, don't you think? These things needed to be released at that time. And that's really what a Renaissance really is. Well, these things always ready to be released. Maybe uh, you feel the need for That's right. Exactly. Yes. So, you lot out there, if you feel the need, it'll come. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Yes. Well, we start off as a single sphere, and we move into the world of becoming, as, it's, as Plato calls it. We, get into, we have to go into the world of difference, which is what we are now. We're very unlike a sphere now. Interestingly enough, the only thing left, not only thing left, but the thing most significantly left about our body is our eyes, both of which are spherical and have perfect circles in them. And Plato actually says the most valuable of the senses were the eyes. And without the eyes, we'd never seen the heavens. Without the heavens, we'd never have discovered philosophy. So it is a process of differentiation. But the other thing one must remember is this is merely, as, as a Hindu would say, this is merely the food body. This is merely the food body. Can you see my subtle body? Can you see my subtle body? It's quite easy to say no. If you say yes, I shall be your disciple immediately. <laughs> Can you see what I'm getting at? Beware of looking at this we all have much more to our bodies than our physical eye can see. And what Socrates said very clearly was, the reason why you study geometry and arithmetic is because it is the only way you can rekindle that third eye, which is worth 10,000. These are his very figures. Socrates is worth 10,000 of your fleshly eyes. Because by this eye alone can you see the truth. So part of the whole process of studying geometry is, is actually giving ourselves a power to understand truth of the capital T, not truth of the little t, but truth of the capital T. And I think, therefore, if one does that, one actually can cultivate one's, the possibilities of seeing more than just the physical body. So are you equating the third eye with the soul itself? No, I think the third eye would be an instrument of the soul. Um, in the Upanishads, quite interestingly, it talks about the soul residing in the heart, size of the thumb, and the whole world is contained in that organ. So different traditions have different ways of looking. It's not a black and white, yes or no, this is the only version. But if you penetrate any revelation, penetrate, you'll find the, you, the doctrines and the questions will be answered. As John just said, if the questions are asked, don't stop searching till you find it. I don't have any formula to give anybody. Formula are very dangerous. 
because people grasp the formula and they forget the investigation, which is personal. Sorry, this man here wanted to ask a question. The, uh, again? Creation ex nihilo. Yes, yes, no, it's not, no. He, he says, which is, a, which is again quite an interesting mystery, because inevitably one says, well, who created that mess out of which the demiurge <laughs> decided to make order? That, that question is bound to be there, but when it comes to it, what I'm sure Plato was determined to do was to take us to the limits of human reasoning. None of us, none of us know what ex nihilo means. I mean, I asked what one minus one is. Nobody in this room can actually hand me on a plate nothing. We can recite it, but what is nothing? What is nothing? Nothing is nothing, as Parmenides went into depth to say. Uh, we, unless we have this sense that nothing is nothing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes, yes, you could. You could, indeed. Indeed, I would, I would go for that. It, it's to do with realizing, in a way, the stunning, the, the being to a halt, the incessant monkey mind, as it's called in Hinduism. The racing mind is always trying to solve things, always trying to... Resting, 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 stilling the mind. And then, extraordinary realizations come through. Why do you think so? nearly every revelation offer systems of meditation and prayer simply to still that. And what Plato was doing was to say, if you are going to go into philosophy, the love of wisdom, he wrote this thing simply warning right from the beginning of the dangers of, of human mind believing it can know more than it can. There's a thing called Ein Sofer in your system. Yes? You, right excuse me, you use the word intellect in the modern sense. Now, ever since I read the little masterpiece by uh, the late lamented Dr. Martin Links, yes. Ancient Beliefs and Modern Superstition, mm -hmm. he uses the word intellect as it was used in the Middle Ages and mm. ancient time. He says that the, the abode of the intellect is not the mind but the heart, mm -hmm. whereas the mind is the abode of reason. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, when you use the word intellect, did you mean it? Mm -hmm. the sense did, of did, the I, did I use the word intellect? Forgive me. Ah, yeah. I was caught. Well, in which case, Raj, good friend of mine here, the word intellect is as badly misused as the word actuality and reality. There's a divine intellect of which the human intellect participates. That's my position, and that's the position I've been brought to by my studies. Human intellect is really the human mind, yeah, and that is as good as the amount of the divine intellect it's able to deal with and handle, and I think that's really what Plato's about, trying to demonstrate what the divine intellect is so that the human intellect can follow it. What, what Dr. Lindsay was arguing in his little book was that the Renaissance reason rebelled yes. against hmm. Revelation. And he uses a chemical expression. Mm. He said, mm. as, as, as the, the moon has rebelled against the sun. Mm. Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't believe that was the Renaissance at all. I think that thing that happened in Italy <laughs> was an aberration. Forgive me, and if there's any great Renaissance scholars here, uh, please don't shoot me till I've got outside the door. But um, the real rebirth took place in the medieval time, when they understood what the intellect was. And what's absolutely fascinating is that the first Renaissance happened in Europe because the Hebrew and Jewish scholars could speak Arabic. 
the Arabs had all that science from ancient Greece. They had all the astronomy they had done themselves. And the Jewish peripatetic philosophers who moved up through Christianity, because they were perfectly welcome to do so, they brought not only the teachings of Plato and Plotinus and so forth with them, but they were able to translate from Arabic into Latin. So it's one of the things that I'm deeply concerned with, and, and it's very much part of my, whatever I'm able to manage to do before the end of my, my number of breaths, I think you've given a certain number of breaths before you have to go, is to actually work very hard on that issue of the first renaissance and the great men of the First Renaissance, so many of them are completely anonymous, such as Bishop Fulbert of Chartres, wrote nothing, virtually nothing, yet inspired all the cathedrals of Europe. The scholars say about him, what a boring man he was, he just told everybody to recite things all the time. What a boring school he ran. Well, how do they know what boring school he ran? We never wrote anything down. Anyway, enough of that. But I, I thank you for that. The, the, the intellect is a divine intellect, not human intellect. Yes, there's a lady with a hand up there. Right. The, the problem with modern science is the definition of what a modern scientist means when he uses the term science. Um, I had the very good fortune of meeting a man called Fritz Schumacher, who wrote a book called Small is Beautiful. Some people will know it. And Fritz Schumacher turned out to have had a metanoia himself when he was in Burma. He'd been sent to Burma to find out why um, the poorest nation on the planet, in terms of um, Western capitalistic calculations of economy, why they were so poor. He got there and he found what he considered to be the richest people on the planet. They made their own clothes, they grew their own food, they were happy, they had their own religion. And so he reported back and then he became a Buddhist because he was so amazed. But what he said was, if anybody uses the word science, to you when they're talking. Don't let them even complete the sentence. Ask them, which science are they talking about? And he said, is it the science of understanding or the science of manipulation? Modern empirical science is a science of manipulation. And it gets manipulated by the multinationals, as we know. So one has to be very careful of what one means by science, because originally the Latin word science referred to the divine intellect, scientia. It wasn't anything to do with. Empirical science is what basically we call modern science, is coming to conclusions from studying the physical world. Well, everybody knows the physical world is constantly changing. So how can you come to anything like a conclusion? So Plato's whole point was, look for the permanent. Look for that which is always true, and then you'll find. Mr. Skelly. Well, probably the basis of it, Ian, is that what the message is, Basically, perfect yourself. There's only one thing you're responsible for. That's your own universe. This, you, we, each of us are a universe. Try to perfect yourself. And in perfecting yourself, you'll suddenly have an understanding of all the other selves who are trying to perfect themselves. The worst thing you can do is go around being a do-gooder. Now, the trouble is, you mustn't ever say that because my spiritual teacher, lady, who's my first spiritual teacher, said to me, what do you want me to be, a do-badder? So don't, don't be against do-gooders, but because it's very important to help other people, to say the least. But your first responsibility is to yourself. It's got to be. And there, that's how you learn about these things, and that's how you learn about other people. Because you suddenly find yourself is the same self in every other self. 
And I think that's going to be my last question. That man just got in time. Yes. So you say it again? Yes, yes. So do these shapes have qualities associated with them? So can they be used for healing purposes? Or if you were constructing yes. a building, because you want all these shapes in the building, so do, do these shapes have particular yes. qualities? They remind the soul of its own perfect nature. And that is done through proportion. A building without proportion is... Well, what's the difference between symbolic and diabolic? Symbolic means to throw together. Diabolic means to throw apart. Now you can choose that. If you're an architect, you can choose to use proportions which will help somebody realize the perfection and harmony of themselves, or you can throw them to pieces like the media does all the day, every day. Sorry? And what you're capable of holding at the time. Yes. Of course. Of course. Yes. Your capacity. Yeah. Don't get drunk. Last question for the lady in the front. This is the very last question. Yes, it is the same. I'm so uh, short and my arm is also Sorry, well, you should have asked her to help your arm. <laughs> Emily would have held it. Yes. Uh, what I was going to say was this that um, I've, I've more or less forgotten the question, but I'll come back to it. Um, these, the, to, from various traditions, um, ultimately come as close as possible. It's not humanly possible to be very, if entirely close divine wisdom, but that they come from different roots. could be a satoric um, tradition, it could be the Vedic tradition, Jainism, it could be Catholicism. Um, uh, but does, does it mean that, or do you think, I don't know, it doesn't mean anything at this point, but do, do you think it was possible any time, because traveling wasn't that easy, for these various traditions to cross each other's paths sometimes? Yes, For example, yes. Mm. you What you raise, madam, is a very, very important issue. We are brought up to believe that communication is only horizontal. But communication actually is vertical. If we develop ourselves and our understanding through meditation, prayer, whatever, we can suddenly find that we have realized truths which are common to a Hindu, to a Chinese person, to anything else like that, because we are realizing ourselves. There can be, and there was, in, the, in, the, in Europe, during the, the real first Renaissance, there was an absolute crossing of paths. Chartres sent students down into Spain to learn from the Muslims, which is an amazing situation, and the Jewish people started the first academy. Most people don't know the first university was started in Cordoba. They talk about that. The point of the matter is, the deeper you get into truth, the more you get near to everybody else's faith. But you mustn't dilute them. You must respect anybody's faith that they've chosen the path. Don't try to divert them off it. That, that's, I mean, I talk because I, I happen to be a teacher because that's my job. But all you can do is ask people to have greater faith in what they believe in, but to go as deeply as they can into it, and they will find they're on common ground. That's, that's what I believe. I understand that. Okay, you have made it very clear. 
right yeah. at the beginning. Okay. My question was this, is that, was there a possibility in those days? Yes, there was, yes, yes, goodness me. The, the translation started yes. into Yeah, Plato went to Egypt, yeah. Pythagoras went as far as India. Um, who was one of Pythagoras's um, chief disciples? Abaris. Abaris came down from the Druids, way up in the stone circles of Scotland, to become one of the disciples of Pythagoras. Horseback riding, you could get around the planet. Goodness knows, amazing. And also, people walked. Anybody here still walk? Anyway, we must draw a close to this. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>